We are going to continue in our teaching series through the Apostles' Creed, which, uh, as we've been studying for the last several weeks, um, we've been reminded that this was originally a baptismal creed, meaning it was a succinct statement of the Christian faith that early Christ followers uh, would learn and memorize and adopt as they anticipated their baptism. And so uh, we are <clears throat> spending really the whole fall up until the season of Advent at the beginning of December, walking through the creed line by line, uh, trying to seek to really understand and grow in our own faith in all of these kind of essential doctrines or statements of belief that are shared by all Christians all throughout history and all around the world. And so this morning we come to uh, the third line, maker of heaven and earth. And we come to this line as uh, it invites us to place our committed trust, our belief, or our faith in a God who is the creator of all that is. And so heaven and earth, both in the scriptures and in the creed, simply refers to everything that exists. Everything above us, everything below us, everything around us, all that is, we uh, affirm along with all Christians everywhere that God is the creator. Now, we could spend lots of time uh, debating and dialoguing about some of the, specific, uh, the specifics of that idea and some of the theories that have emerged throughout history of how God made the heavens and earth and when God made the heavens and the earth and how long the days are and all that kind of stuff. We're not going to do that today. We're simply going to receive by faith that however he did it, whenever he did it, how long it took him, God is the creator of all that is. And so we celebrate that and we place our active trust in that God. And so um, how many of you uh, have had encounters with God in creation? How many of you can think to a time or place where, yeah, most of us, where you were sitting by the ocean or at the top of a mountain or out under a, uh, a beautiful uh, sky full of stars or something like that. And it wasn't just like that it was kind of a warm, fuzzy moment, but there was a true sense that the presence of God was being revealed to you in that moment. That's something that almost all of us can relate to, whether we're hiking the Cascades or surfing the Pacific or climbing in the steams or whatever it is that we do, we have this sense that God is uh, powerfully present within his creation, and that all the beauty of what we might call the natural world or whatever is not just uh, coincidental, but it's actually the result of this world being made by the artistic creativity, by the creative brilliance of a God who's a creator, who's a maker, and a lover uh, of his creation. Now, some people, especially in a place like Bend, take this idea so far to say that nature is my church, right? And I know what you mean when you say that, that when you go out to the mountains or the lakes or whatever, that you have this sense or experience of God. And that's beautiful. I want to affirm that. Um, it's not your church because church is a gathering of God's people that are sent on mission to live out the body of Christ in the world. Um, but I know what you mean, right? I know what you mean. And so for me, it's the ocean. It's always been the ocean. Uh, and uh, 
whenever I find myself sitting on a sand dune or looking out uh, over the waves or something like that, that's the place where I tend uh, to just be able to absorb and experience a sense of God's presence um, like like nothing else. So it's not like it's only Christians that have spiritual experiences in nature, um, but I think there's actually something hardwired into humanity. There's something within us that connects the natural world uh, to the divine. Uh, so, for example, I've never met a surfer who's an atheist, right? Uh, you haven't either. When you're that in touch with the power of the ocean, you know that there's something uh, bigger and better behind it. And so um, what we want to do this morning as we celebrate this uh, historic truth, this biblical uh, teaching that God is the creator of heaven and earth, creator of everything that is, I want to do something kind of just simple and um, a little bit maybe more straightforward than I usually do. And I want to ask the question, so what? And I want to give basically five answers from five different scriptures that would give us, I think, a really foundational, working, biblical perspective on if God is the creator of heaven and earth, the maker of all things, then what are the implications for that belief in how we, as the people of God, as followers of Jesus, uh, see and relate to and interact with the rest of creation that we're part of? Or another way of putting it is why should Christians care about creation? Now, for some of you, this is a question you've engaged deeply. You already have significant convictions or practices in your life that reflect some of these beliefs. And for others of us, this is maybe a question we haven't considered at length. And so I want to, like I said, just lay kind of a foundational biblical theology of the interaction between humanity, specifically Christ followers, and the rest of creation. So why should we care about the creation? Uh, number one, we'll go from Genesis chapter one, the very beginning uh, of the Christian narrative of the scriptures. The book of beginnings is the book of Genesis, and it starts by telling us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the Bible teaches that somehow, in some way, at some point, the world was created, that it didn't just randomly show up. It didn't coincidentally come together, but it was created by a powerful, wise, and loving God. And uh, <clears throat> so when we talk for our conversation this morning about the natural world or about the environment, I prefer the term creation because it reminds us uh, of the identity of the world that we live in. And so those other terms uh, communicate something about the teaching of Scripture, but there's nothing uh, that refers us to a personal being, a loving designer, a creative artist who's behind this world. And so we refer to this world as the creation. And even in, first, or in John chapter 1, we're told that through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And so for me, this is why it's so clear that humans often are able to connect with God, have a sense of the divine through interactions with the rest of creation. It's because it's made by a God who we know through Christ, a God who's given himself to us through the Holy Spirit, a God who has, we, have, uh, we have learned about through the scriptures and through our own story. Our God, who we love, who we worship, who we trust, is the God who made the world that we inhabit. So because we love God, we love what he has created. 
So if you go to my house, or probably a number of us young families in the room, one of the things you're definitely going to find on the wall is my kids' artwork, right? And we have an entire wall in our house dedicated to our three little kids' pieces of art, their paintings, their drawings, their colorings, all that kind of stuff. And are they good? Eh, Maybe, you know, for a six-year-old, it's pretty good. At an objective level, if if somebody studies art uh, critically, you wouldn't look at any of that and just be blown away at the artistic skill or anything like that. But what's so special? Why do Jen and I create space in our home to celebrate these little works of art? Well, it's not because of the art itself. It's because of the artist. It's because our little kids who we love and and nurture and care for have carefully designed these beautiful little giraffes or explosions or whatever it is. And uh, because we love our kids, we love their art. These drawings remind us of them. And even now in the 10 or 11 years we've been parents, we can kind of look back on some of those pieces that we've saved and go, oh, remember when, when Emma was so into unicorns or whatever it was. Like, uh, our love for our kids cause us to love their creation. Now, again, are they good artists? Um, maybe not. But those things are so special to me. Do you think I would sell any of those for $1,000? Of course I would. They can make... <laughs> They'll make hundreds of them. Like, uh, just whip up. So make me an offer. (laughs) Uh, But I hope you get the simple idea that because we love our kids, because they're so special to us and central to our identity and family, therefore their creation means something to us. So at a very basic level, if we claim to love the God who made heaven and earth with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, then by nature we would be prone then to love what he creates because of who he is and he's the one behind it, okay? Basic idea. Next one, we're going to plow through. We've got five scriptures this morning. Number two is the last verse of chapter one in Genesis, Genesis 1.31, that at the end of the creation, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. So unlike my kids' art, God's work is actually uh, good. And the creator of creativity, the creator of art, the creator of beauty, the creator of design, looks at each piece of his creation, everything that he has spoken into existence, and he pronounces it, he declares that it is good. And again, it's not just that God is observing the art like a critic and going, oh yeah, that is pretty good, like he's surprised by it. But God is, uh, he is authoritatively proclaiming. He is, those are words that do something. We've talked about this before. And so when he looks at the ocean, when he looks at the animals, when he looks at the birds and the fish and he looks at humanity and he says, it is good, he's not observing that, he's declaring that and making it true. And so God is not only the creator of the universe, but also the Lord of the universe. And he objectively pronounces the creation as good. And it still is. Of course the creation has been affected by sin, affected by the fall. Of course the creation has places where it's in some times, in some spots, it's not what it could be or should be or used to be. But in the end... God has said it is good, and it continues 
to be good. So, of course, there's just something within us. We don't have to be told that sunsets are, are beautiful. We don't have to be told that rivers and mountains are majestic. There's something wired into us as part of this creation and specifically as those who are made in the image of the creator that recognizes the beauty, the goodness, the significance of the created world. So as followers of Jesus, as those that take God's word seriously in scripture, as those who believe that what God says is authoritative and true, when he pronounces the creation as good, our job is to say yes, to believe it, to affirm it, and to live in line with it. And so we care about the rest of creation because God made it, and secondly, because God said it is good. A couple years ago, before we moved here, we had a neighbor in Corvallis who uh, on his first day showing up with the moving truck, I came over to help him unload and, and get settled in. And uh, it's always that fun conversation for me when we start by going, well, what do you do for work? And uh, I always try to think of some creative, better thing to say than a pastor, but uh, that's what I do. And so you kind of see where it goes from day one. And so he asked me what I do. I asked him what he does. And he is a, a, a philosophy professor at Oregon State and specifically teaches environmental ethics. And uh, quickly, he's a fun, kind of cool guy, but we, we grew to be friends, and he had no fear of just getting right in there at Worldview Questions. And uh, from day one, he, he identified himself as a non-theist. And he's like, an atheist is somebody who believes there is no God and is really worked up about it. A non-theist is somebody who knows there's no God and isn't that worried about it. <laughs> Right, And so for him, it wasn't something he spent any time or energy on trying to battle the religious or anything like that. He's like, I know there's not a God, so I'm just going to live in that knowledge. And uh, so we, we became really good friends, had lots of interesting conversations. At one point, you know, when we got into our Christian, my Christian faith and his non-theism, he goes, look, you can't prove to me that there is a God. I can't prove to you that there isn't. So let's just have a beer, right? And um, so we got along pretty well. But at one point, at one point in our conversation, I go, Alan, as a non-theist, what's the foundation for environmental ethics? If you know there's no God, then why does it matter how humanity interacts with the environment? And it was the most interesting thing because this is what he has his PhD in, and he goes, to be honest, I don't know, and that's the question I'm giving my life to. He goes, but you know what I wish? I wish I had an answer like you do, because as a Christian, you claim to worship the creator of heaven and earth, <laughs> and what better foundation could there be for somebody, therefore, to care about the environment? He's like, you're wrong, but it would sure be nice if I had what you had. Such an interesting conversation. At one point, uh, part of his non-theism versus atheism was like, um, he, he wanted to know, are you a salvation Christian or a creation Christian? I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, salvation Christians, all they care about is getting people's souls saved so they can fly off to heaven when they die. 
But creation Christians actually recognize the heavens and the earth as, as the work of God. And um, for him, that's why there was actually room within the effort for environmental ethics to welcome in Christians because he thought it, those that he would call creation Christians had the best reason uh, to care. And he's right. He's absolutely right. There is no other worldview or religious system or faith that has a deeper intellectual or spiritual resource to draw from for stewarding the natural world than historic Christianity. The God we worship, the God we love, has created this world and said that it is good. Who has a better or greater or stronger reason than we do to care, to care about this world? So let's keep going. What does that care look like? What does God ask for humanity as far as how we are to interact with the rest of creation? In Genesis chapter 2, God brings humanity forth out of the dust of the earth, creates mankind, female and male, in his own image and likeness. And then he states that the Lord God took the man, the writer states, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And so from the beginning, this is what we call the cultural mandate or the, Christian, or the creation mandate. There's this commission that God gives first humans and says, you have a job to do. I'm giving you a garden, and I want you to cultivate it. I want you to tend to it. I want you to care for it, to draw out the beauty and the potential that lies beneath the surface of the soil. And I want you to creatively organize a garden, and I want you to learn how to prune and nurture various uh, animals and plants and trees so that they can bear the most fruit possible. And at one point in the creation, creation mandate, God gives Adam and Eve this, uh, this uh, incredible task of reproducing and filling the earth with the image of God, to go forth and to multiply, uh, which Adam's going, hey, it's a big job, but I think I can handle it. And I mean, they're already naked, right? So uh, it doesn't take too long from there. But this is from the very beginning. God gives humanity a responsibility, a task to take care, to nurture, to love, to protect, and to develop the rest of this world. Now, we know that this scripture has been misused and abused by Christians throughout history that take this idea of working and taking care for it and somehow say, do whatever you want with it. It's here for you. To take all the resources you want and don't worry about uh, anything that happens from there. Just utilize it. And that's just so obviously not what God has in mind. As he speaks creation into existence, says it's good, forms humanity in his image, and says, now I want you to be co-creators with me. I want you to be partners with me. I want you to take care of this land and learn about it and tend to it and draw out all of its potential. And so the Psalms at one point tell us that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So not only did God create it, say that it is good, but he says, it is mine, but I'm entrusting it to your care. You're my house sitters. And I want to see what you can do with this beautiful thing that I've created. 
And so this becomes the foundation of the Christian practice of stewardship. Usually we think of stewardship simply as referring to what we do with our money. And it certainly includes that. But stewardship begins with the understanding that everything that is is God's, including this planet and all environment and ecosystems. My own body belongs to God. And therefore, so does my money and so does my home and so does my stuff. It's all a gift from God. And he says, I want you to receive it as a gift, but understand it's mine and I'm entrusting it to you. And I want you to to take care of these things, steward them well, and let them grow up into things that bring me glory and advance my kingdom on earth. And so this is the practice of stewardship. And as I said, it does connect to how we see our money and use our money, um, understanding that it's all grace, that it's all a gift. Psalm, one, uh, Psalm 19, where Pat read for us, the heavens declare the glory of God. Another dimension of why it is that we should care about creation because the heavens and the earth, the created world of which we are part, declares or unveils or reveals the truth and the beauty of who God is. When we talk about the glory of God, we're not just talking about his fame. We're talking about the revelation of who he actually is. God's glory is most clearly seen when God is seen accurately for who he really is. That's when he is most glorified. And so there's this amazing thing that happens when we look to the natural world. There's what we would call a general revelation of the character of God, the love of God, the creativity of God, that by looking at the world that he has made, we grow to learn something about him. And that's why we have these moments, um, incredible encounters. Go back to the picture a few slides ago. Uh, this week, Nathan and I had a chance to spend a couple days at the Antone Ranch in north, northeastern Oregon. A uh, 30,000 square foot cattle ranch that's also a destination for hunting and fishing and that sort of thing. And uh, happened to get connected with the owner of the ranch who wanted to host a gathering for bend pastors from various churches to come together in the beauty of creation and to share meals together, to pray together, to share our stories, and to dream and collaborate about what it might look like to pursue greater unity and purpose for the greater body of Christ in Bend. And so Nathan and I had the privilege to go, and one afternoon we rode ATVs up the trail to the, to the highest point on this 50-square-mile uh, property. And it's hard to tell from the picture, but we are so high up in the heavens looking down over this incredible valley of lakes and rivers and trees and valleys. There's thousands of antelope and elk and deer and turkeys and all kinds of stuff. And for, for three days, just kind of surrounded by the beauty and the magnificent scope of God's creation. We spent probably two hours on this mountaintop Nathan and I from here, guys from Journey, from Westside, <clears throat> from Riverbend, from Solid Rock, uh, sisters, big churches, little churches, older guys, younger guys, and positioned at the top of this mountain, um, enveloped in the glory and majesty of God, two hours simply praying for each other, 
praying for you guys, our congregations, praying for the city and the region of Central Oregon, that the people that we lead and the neighbors that we love and the cities that we inhabit would get to taste and see the beauty and the goodness of the God who created and is redeeming all of this. Okay? Incredible moments together. And I'll be honest, uh, I don't know if I should tell you this, but up until yesterday, we were actually going to move on to the Jesus Christ, his only son's son line. And after spending three days there, I was like, now nah, we've got to go back and do the creation line uh, again. And so our team accommodated in the last two days and switched everything up. I'm incredibly grateful for them. But for us, this is such a central part of our theology, of our practice, and of our passion as followers of Jesus, that the heavens, the lakes, the trees, the mountains the fish, the elk, declare the glory of God. There's a book I read recently by this uh, farmer in Virginia named Joel Salatin, and uh, he raises animals um, at, at what's called Polyface Farms. And he's a passionate follower of Jesus, and he's super nuts, um, but he's also super committed to what he refers to as forgiveness farming, meaning that uh, we have a responsibility as stewards of the earth to tend to our flocks and our crops and our animals in a way that allows them to live most in tune with who God created them to be. Okay, and so the book is called The Marvelous Pigness of Pigs. <laughs> and he says, how does a pig glorify God? By being a pig, by doing what it does by eating all the junk that it wants to eat, by rooting around, by digging in the dirt. That's how a pig brings glory to God, by being a pig. And so in the book, he builds a case that this is what's so broken with the modern industrial food system, why factory farming uh, is, is such a problem for us as followers of Jesus, that when you take a chicken and put it in a 10-inch by 10-inch cage its entire life, where it can never spread out its wings, where it can never pick uh, at, at the dirt and catch worms and bugs and all that stuff. The chicken isn't actually able to be a chicken. And therefore, it's denied its opportunity to bring glory to God, right? So he's taken this incredibly seriously. He's nuts, um, if you've ever read him. But it's a beautiful idea. It's a beautiful idea that... A tree praises God simply by being a tree. A pig praises God by being a pig. Creation praises God simply by being creation. And we praise God by being who we are, by pursuing the most authentic identity and life that we can, which we know is the life that we've been given in Christ. To walk in bold confidence as redeemed and loved and adopted daughters and sons of the Most High. Simply by believing what God has said to be true about us and what he's accomplished for us in the work of Jesus, that our life brings glory to God simply by us being what we are and doing what we were made to do. So if that's a barista, if that's a contractor, if that's an artist, if that's a stay-at-home parent, if that's a CEO or a salesman, or whatever it is that we do, by being that, our life speaks to the praise and the glory of God. I love it. I 
I love it. There's a place in the book of Romans chapter 3 where basically Paul says that all men are without excuse because God has revealed himself through the natural world, meaning nobody can really claim, I had no idea there was a God. He's like, look at the creation. Look at everything that God made. How could you say there is no God? And so here's one little other element to this thing. That there's actually an evangelistic uh, purpose behind Christ followers caring for the creation. Go to the picture of the beach. If the heavens declare the glory of God simply by being what they are, and there's actually an evangelistic power in the, in the creation, then what happens when you come across a piece of creation that's been trashed and polluted and pillaged? Well, all of a sudden, men are with excuse. Nobody would look at this and say, whoa, what a beautiful, there must be a God, right? Now, there's something that would turn in us in the opposite way and go, that's tragic and that's wrong, and we would have to ask why. But actually, for us to care deeply about creation and to practically live as students and stewards of God's world opens the door for more and more of our friends and neighbors around the city and around the world to have those same encounters with the God of the universe that we do, right? So just a simple, simple idea that nobody walking through uh, the mistreated creation is going to be caught up in the glory of God, and we actually have a call to play. All right, last one. Job chapter 12, and there's several variations on this idea throughout Scripture. He says, speak to the earth, and it will teach you. Speak to the earth. So this is one of the places in scripture that reveals the biblical view is that we as humans have a relationship with the earth, with the environment. We are related to it in the same way that we have relationships with other humans, relationships with God, relationships with ourselves. There's a relationship that God has called us to live in and to pursue health in and that relationship has to do with the rest of creation. And so in our vision of the reconciliation of all things, and our mission to form disciples who are pursuing fulfilled, healed, holistically repaired relationships with God's self, others, and creation, the Bible would call us to pay attention to what is our relationship with the rest of God's creation like. And has it been a healthy one? Has it been a loving one? Has it been a God-glorifying one? Or is it a relationship that needs some attention? Is it a place that the Spirit wants to grow us? And so part of the relationship is that we interact with the creation. We speak to the earth, and it'll teach us. And then in that song that we sang from the book of Matthew, chapter 5, Jesus says, watch the fields Watch the birds. Listen to creation. Pay attention to the way God cares for the plants and the flowers and the animals and the birds. Because as you watch the way God loves and cares for all these other parts of the creation, we're learning something about the love of God for us as well. So why do we worry? Why should I freak out? Right? God knows what I need.
So it's not just the creation that causes us to, the, the fact that God created the world that causes us to love and care for it, but it's also ultimately within the incarnation of Jesus, which is God's way of saying, I haven't given up on this place. I haven't given up on this planet. God so loved the world, the cosmos, all that he made, that he gave his one and only son to enter into it, to become part of it. The creator became part of creation to redeem it and to begin this cosmic revolution from the inside out to make all things new, including us. So we care about the creator, the creation because it was created by God. God incarnated himself in it, and one day he will recreate it. He's not going to make all new things. He's going to make all things new. He's going to come and to redeem and reconcile all the relationships that ought to be, that were meant to be, the way things are supposed to be on earth as it is in heaven. So uh, I'm not going to close by saying, so everybody go out and get a recycling bin and buy a, an electric car and all that kind of stuff. I'm going to let you figure out what that looks like. Here's my three practical takeaways. The first is enjoy creation. God made this place to be a place where we can meet with him through swimming, through hiking, through mountain biking, through walking through the meadows, through tending to animals, through growing vegetables in a garden. Enjoy creation. It doesn't seem like a super sacred, spiritual, holy thing to do, but it's at the heart of God's grace for us. I've given you this place, and I want you to enjoy it. And it's there that we meet him. Secondly, take a weekly Sabbath. You'll have to figure out, man, I got out of order there, but you'll have to figure out what that looks like for you and for your family. But where in your life do you create space to simply be still and know that he is God? To enjoy the life that he's given, to cease from all your working just like God did on the seventh day and to simply, <clears throat> to simply be instead of do. It's one of the Ten Commandments. It's the one we consider a suggestion for some reason. And secondly, and finally, pray before meals. It's one of the kind of classic Christian practices, but I'm convinced that there's incredible value to sit down, whether it's a really simple, small meal or whether it's a, a beautiful celebratory feast. And the old-fashioned way of talking about praying before meals is that we say grace, to look at what God has provided and to say grace. It's all a gift. It's all a gift. And he's created us as part of this world that something had to die, a plant, an animal, whatever it is, so that we might live. So we come to the table, any table it is, and we say, grace. Which is ultimately how we come to this table this morning. Knowing that someone died so that we might live body of Christ was broken, the blood of Christ was poured out, and we come before the communion table with empty hands, simply declaring grace. God has given himself to us. He hasn't given up on us, and he wants us to live life deeply with him and for him in this world that he's made for his glory. Will you stand and pray with me?
God, your grace is so good. And this whole world is an expression of your handiwork, your love, your wisdom, your creativity, and your power. God, what an amazing thing it is to be the signature on your beautiful creation. And so I pray, Lord, that this wouldn't simply be an inspiring environmental ethics talk for us, but these would be ideas that your spirit would use to draw us deeper into you, to see who it is that you've created and redeemed us to be through Christ, that our lives would sing glory to your name, that our existence would magnify your glory in all the earth. So I pray that this morning we would be able to receive and drink deeply of your life and know who you are and who we are in you. Help us to love you and love one another as we love ourselves and love the world that you've created. We trust you. We need you. You are so beautiful. In Jesus' name.